forest doesn't care about our backgrounds, our skin color, our religion, our sexual choices, our gender preferences, and our political preferences, anything like that, right? I mean, if it rains, we're both going to get wet. As much as we're granted life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, oftentimes the only thing holding us back from these is, well, other people that are endowed with the same unalienable rights. And, and it is sad. Nature, nature doesn't judge us, but we judge other people and oftentimes. Hello, Meister fans. This episode is supported by Wigwam Socks with their Ultimax moisture control system. They'll keep your feet cool, dry, blister-free. They do it with a seamless toe box, a breathable mesh panel on the top. They're absolutely beautiful, perfect for running, biking, hiking, and my favorite, mountain meistering. For 25% off of your purchase, go to wigwam.com. Use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout. Hello there, and welcome to Mountain Meister. This is the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and today we're exploring the mind of Stacy Bear. Hello, Stacy. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show. Stacey Bear is the director of Sierra Club Outdoors and also the co-founder of Veterans Expeditions. After serving in Baghdad for the U.S. Army, he faced post-traumatic stress and adjustment disorders. And if it wasn't for climbing and other experiences in the outdoors, he might not be here to talk with us about it today. Stacey, thank you for your service on so many levels and welcome to Mountain Meister. Yeah, excited to be here and uh, talk about getting outside. First off, what are you, two days back in the States from Angola? Yeah, I got back late Sunday night uh, from 14 days in Angola. Uh, and I was out over there climbing with Alex Honnold and a couple guys from the Honnold Foundation, Mari Birdwell and Ted Hesser. It was a pretty epic trip. Yeah, do tell. So I had two different stints in the army. I was in the army the first time, 2000 to 2004. And then I got out. And when I got out in 04, I went and did landmine clearance uh, in Angola in the former Soviet state of Georgia. And then I got recalled to the United States army. And so I was in Angola 2004 to 2005, like right after the civil war had ended kicking landmines out of the ground. I got super sick while I was over there and went from like 245 or so down to about what, about 195. Uh, which uh, Alex referred to as perfect sport climbing weight and didn't know why I was whining about it. <laughs> Basically, from 2004 to like 2007, I spent like four or five years in different conflict or immediate past conflict zones. And a couple of years ago, I started thinking about what it would look like to go back to all the places that I was at or was supposed to be at and and go and, and climb or surf or ski in these places and, and try and view them from a different location, you know, from like a different lens, right? Mm, uh, right as opposed to looking at them through kind of the lens of war or destruction, viewing them through the lens of adventure. And um, it finally happened. Um, last year, my friend Tim McGough from Telluride Adaptive Sports invited my wife and I to come down with them and, and help out on a, this really amazing adaptive trip they do down to Portillo in Chile. And my wife and I were like, yeah, that'd be really awesome. We should go. And then I was like laying awake one night and I couldn't sleep. And I, I was like, why, why am I struggling about this opportunity to go to Chile? And I realized that the reason I was struggling about it was 
like, don't get me wrong, skiing in Chile would be totally badass. I really want to do that, but it's, it's not my dream. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have this other set of dreams that I want to, you know, follow and accomplish. And that's going back, you know, and basically make adventure, not war in these different places. And, and I was like, I got to do that. I just, I got to start, I got to commit to those dreams. Um, because who knows what life is going to bring me. Originally, I thought I was going to go to Bosnia this last spring. And then I met Alex at an event, a Sierra Club event in January. And we have some mutual friends and I'm an ambassador for the North Face. He's an athlete for the North Face. And and so we were chatting about like, you know, different projects. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go to Bosnia and then I hope to go to Angola. And Alex said, I'd love to go to Angola. And I was like, cool. When do you want to go? And he was like, I don't know, maybe like late summer. And I was like, all right, all right. Cause when Alex Honnold says he wants to go climb with you in Angola, <laughs> you just say, okay. So what's it like climbing with one of the best out there? Like the funniest part about the whole trip in some ways was that like, I got climb as much as I can. And it's not as much as most people who consider themselves climbers. Probably I'm like a five ten climber on a really good day. Uh-huh. And Alex is obviously Alex and is like a five fourteen climber. Um, and like a, you know, like a five thirteen climber on a bad day. And, um, so we went and, and all the climbing in Cola was super, super hard. And when I finally climbed, like, like my first climb, Alex, like top rope me on a five seven. And I felt like such a little kid, but, um, it was, it was pretty awesome. And, um, yeah, so we went back and, um, I wasn't kicking landmines out of the ground this time, although we did meet up with my old employer and just, yeah, had a, had a really, really great time traveling through, through a little bit of that country. Okay, few questions here. Uh, in order for us to see through this lens of going back to a different place, we need to figure out what went on the first time you were there, which you describe as kicking landmines out of the dirt. <laughs> what? How does one disarm a landmine besides kicking it? Yeah, um, so a little backstory on that, really. Uh, um, basically what happened, I was in Bosnia. Uh, I was deployed to Bosnia, and um, I was dating this girl, and uh, she wasn't as maybe as into me as I was into her. And uh, I was getting out of the army and she was going to go do like humanitarian work somewhere. And so I Googled landmine clearance because I wanted to like in my mind prove to her that I was doing huh. something good with my life. And so I actually just sent then a resume off to the first like three or four p- names that showed up on that Google search. But um, you don't actually kick a landmine out of the ground. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually a very boring job, hmm. landmine clearance by design. Um, you use a metal detector or you just scrape away at the dirt in front of you. If there's too much metal contamination in the ground or um, if the ground's too hard to dig in. And yeah. And then when you find a landmine, um, you raise your hand and somebody oftentimes, you know, eventually it would be me or whoever would come up and then, basically place an explosive right next to the landmine and then you'd blow the landmine in place. If there was a bunch of landmines, um, you might actually dig underneath the landmine and let it drop in your hand and then you'd put it in a box to be blown up later. Um, If there's an anti-tank mine and it's in pretty good shape, you can oftentimes take the fuse out of it and then use uh, deck cord to blow the top off the landmine and then harvest the explosives inside it for future, um, for future use as explosives. But um, you know, I joke that like when you're a kid, all you want to do is play in the mud and blow things up. And that's what I got to do for a living for about, for about two years. And that's pretty true. It was, it was pretty fun. But but why don't the landmines explode when you get close to them? Well, 
Um, I feel very ignorant asking that question, but no, that's, that's no, I think wondering. that's fine. I think it's great that Americans have no idea about right, that's true. work, <laughs> you know, because we don't we don't have to deal with them. Um, and it was interesting in Angola, you know, the other part of our the other guys on our team didn't understand all the growth that I had seen and the development I had seen in Angola because they weren't there 11 years ago when there were landmines literally all over the place. And um, the Halo Trust and a number of other groups have done a great job taking landmines out of the ground there and they're over the hill and that more than half the landmines that, that they know of in the country are out mm-hmm. of the ground. And, and it's really changed how the country looks in terms of agriculture and access to water and everything else like that. But uh, basically when you step on a, uh, to, to, to detonate a landmine, you have to step on it and you step on a little trigger and the trigger releases typically a ball bearing, which connects a circuit and that circuit then detonates a charge, which then blasts up through the ground and um, would blast through your foot or your leg. Uh, and they're, they're typically designed to maim you, not kill you, hmm. because uh, a, an injured person in the battlefield, you know, takes another couple people out of the fight, right, to go deal with it and, 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 and actually has a more immediate impact on morale. And so, you know, it's, it's very slow work. And like I said, you do use a metal detector and you move forward really slowly, typically in a one meter lane. You'll cover any given piece of ground three times before you move forward. If you get a beep, it's basically just a metal detector. You move back 10 centimeters, down 10 centimeters, and then slowly start digging a 10 centimeter box forward. So, but yeah, it, it, it's not one of those things where in the movies, right, people step on a landmine right. and then they're frozen there. And if, if they can somehow get the right weight on top of that landmine, it won't blow up. That's actually not true. Hmm. As soon as you step on a landmine, it, it releases that little ball bearing or whatever to connect the trigger. And and there are stories out there, right, of people um, stepping on landmines and, you know, there's water in the landmine and they hear the click, but then the circuit doesn't get completed or the ball bearing gets jammed or whatever. And um, I can only imagine how scary that is. We actually, uh, several years ago, um, with anti-tank mines, which are obviously much bigger and designed to blow up tanks or vehicles, um, and in Angola, the roads would get super hard in the dry season. And uh, you could actually drive over a landmine and, it, and nothing would happen, right? Because wow. it was literally cooked in the cement. And we actually did that, um, which which was really trippy to like come back a couple days after we had driven over a certain piece of road and seeing a landmine, one of our other landmine disposal teams out there working on this anti-tank landmine. And there's a picture of me somewhere pointing at this anti-tank mine and it says, look, mom, I drove over a landmine. Oh, man. <laughs> so you, you, oh, man, you talk about this very nonchalantly. Why is it that, like, if somebody was give, like to give me a list of jobs and disarming landmines was on that list, it, I would put it very close to the bottom of what I would prefer to do. Well, I guess it would depend on what else is on that list, right? That is true. That's definitely true. But I can't really imagine too many other things that would be below it. Yeah. Why do you want to do this? Why did you Google this besides to impress a girl? Yeah, which which totally didn't work. Um, and, and the other thing was that like I would be not in Angola, right? But you'd be you'd be home on leave or whatever, and you'd be at the bar, and you know I was like twenty five, twenty six, and I thought this would be like the most the thing that would impress women the most, right? Does like, it? Wh- no, it okay. sounds so fantastic that women think you're just lying to them, like. I, I'd be like, yeah, I, I take landmines out of the ground. And the most common response was like, why well, design cookies? And the first few times I actually thought I met people who designed cookies, but uh, it turns out they thought I was lying. So they were just lying back to me. Right, right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think why did it, 
um, I mean, ultimately, and you know, living in Bosnia, when I was stationed in Bosnia, you see a lot of boys and girls and, and, and men and women who are missing legs or arms because of landmines. And they're not able to, uh, they're not able to, people aren't able to live a normal life, right? Their, their fields are full of landmines. They can't get back to their normal life. And, you know, America's foreign, foreign policy response, I think, has been very confusing for anybody in the United States, let alone people in the countries where we've, where we've intervened uh, militarily or not. And in 2004, when I got out of the army, I was really confused as to what the United States was doing. And I think that confusion, um, I think that confusion persists, right? And I think that confusion has persisted over the last 11 or 12 years, uh, is the, is we've changed what it is. We were, you know, we went into Iraq for weapons of mass destruction. Then it was the global war on terrorism. Then it was to support democracy. Uh, and then we just left and now we have ISIS and, and Afghanistan is the same kind of way. Um, and, and it's just really confusing. And, and the nice thing about landmine clearance is in a way it was an opportunity and I'm privileged enough to say this, but in a way it was an opportunity just to, to settle my head and do some pretty objective good in the world that didn't have a lot of subjective questions around it. Right. Taking landmines out of the ground is a good thing. Yeah. Um, full stop. And it's pretty black and white. Well put. So now we look at the second lens through the adventure lens, your trip to Angola. Did it meet your expectations? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it totally blew my mind. You know, I, I still don't think I really understand that I've just already gone and come home from Angola and that I spent two weeks there, you know, walking around and, and climbing rock. Um, in Angola, they figured out that Alex was a celebrity. They didn't necessarily <laughs> understand why he was a celebrity, but he was a celebrity. He's somebody famous coming to Angola. And so there was media like everywhere we went. I mean, imagine like waking up in the morning and going to climb rocks and, and there being like 30 people cheering for you wow, and wanting to hear every, everything that you did about it. And we came off of this one climb last Thursday, Alex was feeling under the weather and we went out and, and just kind of messed around on this relatively chill problem. Um, th- this route called the Stegosaurus, it's like a two pitch five, eight. And, um, I, you know, it's like a big deal for me to free solo it for Alex. Obviously it wasn't, but we came down and there was this reporter who had been waiting for days to get an opportunity to speak with Alex. And he was like, he asked Alex, he's like, was there any fruit up there? And Alex was like, no. He's like, was it, were there any animals? No. What about ferocious animals? No. Was it, was it a nice place to sleep? And could you sleep up there? And Alex was like, well, you could, but like, I don't, I don't think we would. And the guy's like, then why did you climb? You know? And you kind of realize the absurdity of rock climbing. Yes. Um, and, and in a way, the absurdity of travel to Angola to go rock climb, right? Because the other question was, don't you have rocks in the United States um, that you could climb? Or don't you have beautiful things in the United States that you could climb? And, and so you kind of think about the absurdity of, of adventure as well. Yes. Um, but at the same time, it was really incredible. I mean, it, it was awesome to, to be able to go back. And, and they were happy to have us. And for me, rock climbing wasn't the end goal, but rather a way to frame the trip for a journey. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, whereas I think for some of the other guys climbing was the purpose, um, which is great. And I think you can, in one trip, you can hold so many different objectives and purposes and reasons for being. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about adventure. Um, but yeah, you really do realize just the absurdity of rock climbing. And I think a question that kept running through my mind is, you know, 
do the Angolans who many of the Angolans who are working just to survive right at this very base level of survival and the lowest pyramid or the lowest part of Maslow's hierarchy, do they look out and see these beautiful rocks and mountains? Are they awed by them or is it just another intrusion into their day-to-day survival? Right. Yeah. Very good way to put it with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. A listener um, wrote to me one time and said that her parents grew up in China and were fairly poor and were able to make their way and have very successful lives in America. Um, But when they were younger, you know, they're living in subprime conditions. And when they reach America, there's all this, you know, hey, get out there, go get dirty, go camping. And that's the last thing they want to do, right? They've spent their time. They they don't want to get out there and get dirty they're just happy to be clean it's it's very it's a weird juxtaposition yeah it, it is especially because like yeah i mean they're they're working to get clean and to stay clean and, right. and and to live healthy lives and to drink clean water and here we are and we roll in and right we have this massive carbon footprint to get there and we're drinking bottled water and it there is that juxtaposition and, and why do you do it and i think I think you do it and, and you come back home, hopefully, and work harder to offset both the carbon footprint, but then to create a world where the Angolans, as well as the community you're in, can can thrive and flourish, right? And I mean, there's a solar part of the project that we were doing with the Holland Foundation and, and clean energy work and everything else like that. And I do think there's a ton of value to adventure. I think there's a lot of value both both to the individuals who are doing the adventure, the people they meet, as well as the stories we come back and tell um, because honestly, at this point in, in the world, it seems like we're going to intervene in countries anyway. We might as well intervene by sending people over to do, to, you know, to do joyful things and, and push themselves physically and mentally um, as opposed to plant more landmines in the ground or try and sweep through the country with our own ideologies as, as to how the world works. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, there was a lot, there was a lot of laughter and there was a lot of joy and there was a lot of people meeting one another. And after everywhere we climbed, all the kids wanted to climb and, and adults wanted to climb and they wanted to see it. And, um, but, but it is, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, I think adventure is a very existential question, yeah, right. And why we adventure and what we do. And, um, I'm sure, you know, my, my dad's family is from Southeast West Virginia on the edge of the coal fields. And, um, I can only imagine what cousins of mine from two or three generations back would say about, you know, on, on your Saturday, you're going to go and get dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you should try some time in the coal mines and you'd have a different idea of what Saturdays meant. The end goal of every human is the same, right? They want warm meals. They want to be dry. They want goodness. They want joy. They want to avoid needless suffering. And that's the same wherever you go. You're listening to Mountain Meister. This is our conversation with Stacy Bear. He's the director of Sierra Club Outdoors. If you want to hear more from this conversation, go to our play director package at mtnmeister.com slash support, where you'll also find other ways for you to help us. From 2006 to 2007, Stacy served in Baghdad for the U.S. Army. We pick things up there. Like a lot of people that got recalled out of the individual radio reserve, I was a civil affairs officer. 
um, we're kind of the uh, we're, we're the dorky kids in the special operations community. Um, we don't have any of the cool long tabs or any of the really cool training, but ultimately the, the idea is, is that we're supposed to support kind of the hearts and minds work of the United States military. And, um, our main job was to, to go out and figure out how we could best support uh, a return to civil society for the Iraqis, uh, in Western Baghdad. And then later I focused specifically on, on a region called Katamiya, which was home of the oldest known settlement in Baghdad. And it was a really beautiful place. Baghdad's a beautiful city, by the way. Um, just an incredible city. Uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, it's had years of neglect under, um, first under Saddam Hussein and then was subject to years of, and still is subject to years of, of, of military engagement, but um, a lot of really wonderful Iraqis. At the beginning, you said that a goal was to return to these areas. Have you returned to Baghdad since your service? I haven't. So Angola was the first... Mm-hmm. Um, place on this tour of make adventure not war that 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 i've gotten back to um i would like to get back i I don't know if if getting back to baghdad is is going to be reality for for a long time um getting back to iraq i think will be reality i'd love to go skiing in kurdistan um i would love someday to raft you know to paddle um the euphrates i think would be incredible or or the other you know i mean there's a couple huge rivers obviously in iraq um, I think that would be a really incredible opportunity. Um, but I think getting back to Iraq is most likely going to be a, a backcountry ski trip in Kurdistan and in, in, in Kurdish Iraq before anything else, which is, um, which is doable and I think would be great. Uh, I think it'll be a little bit different planning for that trip than, than Angola and, and what we do on the lead up and, and when we get back. But um, That seems like it'd be a pretty powerful trip for you. Do you, do you still have post-traumatic stress from your service in Iraq? I, I would say, you know, do I still have post-traumatic stress issues? Yeah, certainly. Um, will those be chronic and impact me my entire life? I don't know. Talk to me again in 60 years mm-hmm. uh, when we're doing these type of podcasts is like 3D, <laughs> right. you know, like holograph cast with mountain meister and it'll be you and i and we'll all be like wrinkly and old and your iphone will be in your ear <laughs> right we'll just yeah and we'll just transport just to one another <laughs> yeah and our kids will be like isn't that cute um you know you, you you have those things and you have these challenges and and there are certain things that i get frustrated with and everything but I, i've been able to come up with a series of i guess different coping mechanisms to help get my life uh back um, and I've been really lucky to have tremendous support from my wife and, and from a lot of close friends and, and really from spending as much time outdoors as I can, which for me has been a real foundational element, I think, of my healing. And I think for all people, whether they're veterans or kids or, or adults or, you know, people who grow up in an upper middle class lifestyle and, and are lucky enough to stay in that lifestyle their whole lives still have trauma at some point in their lives or difficult situations oftentimes. And, and I think the outdoors is um, the cheapest and, and best way to, to get people back to some sense of normalcy in their own life, normalcy for what they want their lives to be. Yeah. Before we get to those, how, how bad did things get before you found climbing? Um, you know, I was, uh, most of my student loans, uh, ended up going towards cocaine and cocaine related expenses. I was, I was a priest, I had a huge cocaine habit that I hid from most of the people I was around pretty effectively. Um, uh, I was suicidal. Uh, uh, I've, I've been sober, completely sober off of alcohol for about four and a half years. Um, so, you know, it, it got pretty bad. 
there's just this instance, at least from what I've read, that you try climbing. Can you try to put that into words, what that was like the first time? Sure. My, my buddy Chuck, who I actually haven't talked to in a little while, um, who's about my height, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, big, tall, lanky guy like me. 6'7", 6'8"? Yeah. Which, there, there's a reason you don't see a lot of climbers our size, by the way. Gravity is a gravity is a, can be a real son of a bitch. Um, and people are always like, get your hips in closer to the wall. It's like, you get your hips in closer to the wall. Um, but he, he got me out climbing in, uh, on the first flat iron. And I think why climbing made so much sense and still makes so much sense to me is it, it pulls me out of everything else and you just have to be so focused on the climb and you live so cleanly in the now, um, that you're not thinking about guilt for not still being in Iraq or guilt for making it home when your friends didn't make it home or fearing if you're doing enough to, you know, am I living in my life in such a way that it's a legacy to, to my friends who died? Uh, what am I going to do? Am I going to make it through the next day? Um, you, you know, to be an effective climber, even at five, 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 six, you have to be in the now. Um, and I came down from that climb and decided that that's, you know, I needed to help get other veterans into that mind space. And, um, that led to the founding of veterans expeditions and, and kind of that idea. And then Nick Watson came in, um, right away after that, the co-founder of veterans expeditions. And, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the, the proliferation of outdoor veteran outdoor related organizations speak to, um, its power, you know, and the power of the outdoors for me, you know, climbing, I, I, I like to say climbing saved my life and skiing sustains it. <laughs> and, um, and I think that's true for a lot of veterans. If you can, if you can get service members engaged um, in the outdoors, uh, it can be incredibly powerful. It doesn't necessarily have to be climbing. For me, I think climbing and, and then mountaineering offer up the best response to what we saw in the military. But obviously, other people are going to disagree with me, and and that's fine. There's 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 no need to fight over <laughs> right. what event is best for you outdoors. The key is just to get outdoors and try it all, I think. Right. Immerse yourself into something, right? Rather than the booze bottle. Totally. But yeah, I think the reason, you know, I found it to be so good for me and I wanted, and I hadn't found any services like that before and, and thought that there was a, a series of services that were missing. I'd been on an outward bound for veterans course, um, which was amazing. And I came out of it. And part of the reason and I thought, you know, well, what happens when you're not at base camp? And because Outward Bound does a great job at base camp. And that's kind of what led to Veterans Expeditions. And, and we still have a great relationship and, with Outward Bound for Veterans. And I can't say enough good things about Outward Bound and Chad Spangler, who runs that program. But and and there's a lot of like I said, there's a lot of other organizations that are doing it. There's, there's an umbrella, you know, he's trying to pull it all together called R4 and Bert Gillette and they're doing great things. But with Veterans Expeditions and now the Sierra Club, it, it was just to fill a need. And, you know, I, you know, I learned in ROTC from Master and Timothy Lindsay that uh, when there's a job to be done and nobody's doing it, you just have to go do it. Huh. And I guess that's that that has always rung with me. Um, or stuck with me. And the other, the other comment that stuck with me from Master Aunt Timothy and Lindsay was, um, you know, more or less, you need to live your life as a crap umbrella. Uh, and that is, if you, can, if you can ensure that those around you remain as crap free from the world um, and let them do their jobs, they'll lift you up. 
And I think Veterans Expeditions is a perfect example of that. If you can just get those people out into the outdoors and, and get them on their own, they'll lift up their communities when they get back um, because they'll see that they can do things that maybe they forgot they had the strength and the power to do. Um, and they begin to have confidence and camaraderie and, and find purpose and, and hopefully meet other non-veterans in the outdoors and, and realize that non-veterans have a lot to give to them and that they're part of a larger community and that they have a lot to learn from non-veterans and non-veterans have a lot to, to learn from them. And it just kind of becomes this really beautiful, righteous cycle. Right. But yeah, I just started it because I, I saw a need there. I like this military advice. It's a, it's a little philosophical, but it's very direct. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a little philosophical. Uh, Tim Lindsay, dude from Arkansas, he's still running around, I'm sure, out there changing the world in his own way. Um, but he had to get through our thick skulls as young, predominantly drunk freshmen at the University of Mississippi in the mid-90s, and, um, and, he, and he did it. And, and it's funny how those lessons you learn when you're young stick with you. Yes. Are there any other uh, lines that you'd like to share? I, I could listen to these all day. Yeah, I, yeah, I should think about them. Another good one is um, this is also from a senior NCO. All, all, most of my strong life lessons come from senior NCOs or junior NCOs, non-commissioned officers. Um, you you can stand upside down in a bucket full of shit for at least a week. So what are you complaining about? And I, and I never really actually understood what that meant, but um, it, it kept me from complaining. We might have to post some of those quotes on your Meister profile page. Uh, that'll be on our website, MTN meister.com you're very involved in the sierra club can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there sure uh the sierra club outdoors is i think the heart and soul of the sierra club which is we exist to explore enjoy and protect the planet we get out about two hundred fifty thousand plus people a year outside um we have a strong military veterans program that through all of our programs at sierra club outdoors we impact about 13 to fifteen thousand service members veterans and their families we get out about 15,000 kids and adults who otherwise might not have a chance to get outside through our Inspiring Connections Outdoors program. And then another 230,000 um, members and participants come through our 63 different chapters that are spread out throughout the country. Um, and, and part of the reason, one of the reasons that I love being at the Sierra Club is that uh, the Sierra Club fights for, for our land and clean air and clean water. And one of the things I realized in my journey to healing and my journey kind of to, to coming back from Iraq was that, uh, you know, what did I fight for if it wasn't for our public lands and what it's the physical country that I fought for. Right. And, and where else can you find such an expression of our democratic ideals, equality, freedom, liberty, and justice than, than really outside and out on our public lands. Right. Cause I mean, if you and I meet each other in the middle of, you know, a national forest or whatever, that forest doesn't care about our backgrounds, our skin color, our religion, our sexual choices, our gender preferences, and our political preferences, anything like that, right? I mean, if it rains, we're both going to get wet. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's flooding, we're both going to drown unless we work together. Uh, and if it's a beautiful day, we're both going to feel the rays of the sunshine and, and see the sunset. And, um, and when I kind of dug into the Sierra Club a little bit and recognized, like, you know, our first veteran outing was with Teddy Roosevelt out in Yosemite. Um, and then our first full-time executive director was David Brower, who was a World War II vet and fought to save the Grand Canyon. I realized like, you know, this is a great place for kind of my second act of service um, is, to, is to expose more people to the outdoors, get more people to the outdoors um, and, and show them and help to show them what's been so powerful in my life and so many other people's lives. And that's 
you know, that the outdoors is a critical part of who we are. And, and I think it's a critical, you know, our public lands are a critical part of the American identity and fighting to save that and fighting to save clean air and clean water just seems like a natural for anybody who's, who served their country yeah, or wants to serve their country in or out of uniform. So maybe you can help me with this. This is a little bit cynical, but the, the wilderness doesn't judge us, right? But, mm-hmm. but the people who do judge are the humans, the ones that are experiencing the wilderness. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? You know, you know, it is. And, and I think the other depressing thing is a lot of people find the outdoor community to be really closed and, and, and really snobby at times and difficult to get into. You know, if you're not climbing 512, right. like good enough, if you don't have a brand new pair of skis or you're not like crushing double blacks at the resort or whatever. Um, and, and I think that's a real tragedy because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I've met so many great people in, in the outdoors and in guys like Alex Honnold doesn't give a crap what I climb more so than the fact that I'm at least out there giving it, giving it my all. Um, and, and it is sad. Nature, nature doesn't judge us, but we judge other people. And oftentimes, um, and, and what I find, find in the outdoors is I find so much common ground with people. You know, I'm not a hunter, for example, but I went hunting with my brother for, and a bunch of our friends, um, on my brother's 40th birthday last year. And, you know, the, the, the guide, our guide was like, there better not be any environmentalists or Sierra clubbers out here. <laughs> and I, I like rose my hand and I was like, uh, actually I work for the Sierra club. And then his next line was something like, well, at least there's probably not any bankers and lawyers. And, and the rest of our friends like all raised their hands for the most part. And he was just playing to easy stereotypes. But like after that first evening out on the hunt, we realized we had all these things in common, right? We were committed to these beautiful places and we found it, found nature to be so healing. But even in that space, we had to get away from these preconceived notions. And, but I think if you get out there and, and you look at it, right. And nature has a diversity problem right now. Nature doesn't have a diversity problem, but we do. I mean, we right. haven't gotten enough people out um, to feel comfortable in nature. Um, you know, there, but there are lots of great organizations and um, you know, I, I, you know, people that I think your listeners would love to have on people like Zoe Polk um, from outdoor Afro, uh, with, along with Becky Brannigan and room map. And they, they put together a trip, you know, uh, and led a group of, of African Americans up to the top of Mount Whitney or Jose Gonzalez from Latino outdoors or, uh, Morgan and Vanessa from girl Trek who are working to get African American women out walking and, um, and, and oftentimes in the outdoors. So there's a lot of people out there doing that type of work and, and we just need to really lift it up and, um, and keep finding that common ground. But, but you're right. I mean, we're way too judgy. And I think a lot of times if somebody goes outside and they're not wearing a plaid and they don't have the latest piece of X, Y, Z gear, they may not feel we've got to do a better job making people who come outside wearing cotton t-shirts, jeans, and, mm-hmm. and tenny runners, they need to feel comfortable in the outdoors as well. Very well put. I really like what you said there. Uh, on the note of gear, let's hear a gear recommendation from you. That's perfect timing. Um, something that our listeners should have, but shouldn't be made fun of for not having. <laughs> exactly. Like this, this is, this is, yeah, I just right. said that and I'm a total gear dork. Right, right, have, right. Exactly. My basement is full of gear, um, for very specific reasons. Some of it, which I've probably never even used or will only use once. Uh-huh. Um, but my favorite piece of gear right now is a, is the cinder cinder climbing pack from the North face. It's like 50, the Cinder 55, everything I get, I, I rarely get the day packs or anything else like that. Cause all my gear is just so big. Mm-hmm. 
that a day pack doesn't work for me if I'm if I have to put in a pair of climbing shoes. It probably looks tiny on you too. It does. Even this pack looks tiny, and people are always like, "Why? You should change that." But it's it's the best climbing pack. I love it. Um, it's super clean. It's basically just an old style rucksack, ripstop canvas. It's it's it doesn't leak. You can run through Angola for two weeks with it, and it's just as good as as when you took it out of the box. Um, you can roll it down for a carry on. Um, take it everywhere you go. Um, maybe the only thing you shouldn't do with it is backpack multiple nights with it, but I have used it for overnights. Um, and it's, it's my favorite pack and I will, yeah, that and a headlamp, a Petzl headlamp, I would take those two things are pretty much all I need to survive. (laughs) Screw the food, right? Find the food, man. And who needs clothes? (laughs) Those on Stacy's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Finally, who do you want to hear as the next Mountain Meister? You dropped a couple of names there. I'm really quite humbled to be on your show with all the names of people, you know, people I follow and people I'm excited about and people I really look up to come on to your show. So um, I would love to see Zoe Polk from Outdoor Afro. Um, she or Becky Brannigan, who j- just led this climb up uh, Mount Whitney. Um, Morgan and Vanessa from Girl Trek are just doing incredible stuff around the, around the country. And then Jose Gonzalez from Latino Outdoors, I think, you couldn't go wrong with any of those groups of people um, who are doing just incredible work to get um, user groups in the outdoors that we oftentimes overlook. Keep an ear out for those guys and girls, guys and gals, on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Stacy Bear, awesome having you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. Dude, thanks. This has been a lot of fun, and keep up the great work. It's it's awesome podcast. was Stacy Bear. He's the director of Sierra Club Outdoors. He is a U.S. Army veteran, the co-founder of Veterans Expeditions. Stacy, thanks so much for joining us. Really enjoyed having you. Meister fans, don't forget, 15, nope, 25% off of your purchase at wigwam.com with the code MEISTER at checkout. They'll keep your feet as happy as their employees in a town called Sheboygan, Wisconsin, where the average employee tenure is 17 years. Whoa, it's a long time. Definitely longer than Mountain Meister's employee tenure, which is about a year and a half. If you'd like to make that tenure even longer, go to our support page, mtnmeister.com support. You can donate to the podcast there. And as usual... Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. 